chapter 8, just a single message this morning from this book. As I uh, was reading this not long ago and looked at these two verses, and uh, you know, I don't know, with me, it's when I'm reading the book, I'm not reading the Bible to look for sermons, but you find them everywhere, <laughs> and you just say, I'd like to preach that, or I'd like to, to give that, and, and I saw in these two verses that very thing. So <clears throat> Howard read these to us men to go. Let me have you notice by way of introduction just a couple words here. First of all is the word sum, not sums as you used to do in arithmetic, but of all the things that we have spoken, this is the sum. Uh, one translation has it summary. It's the word kaphale, which is the word head. And you know, when, when something is the, the head of it, it's the sum of it. It's the total of it. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, I've written seven chapters to you, and I've taken you through all of these things. Now let me just summarize that real quickly. Well, when he does that, then we have everything that he said right here in a nutshell that we can look at easily. Then he says also in that same verse, when he begins, we have such a high priest. In other words, what kind of priest is that? Well, the one that I've been describing to you. <laughs> we have such a high priest as this. So let me remind you, because maybe it's been a while since you've been in the book of Hebrews or uh, we've gone through it, of just what's happening. Turn back, just thumb some pages, and I'll be giving you a number of references from this book so you can thumb back and forth this morning a lot. But in chapter 3 and verse 1, he began describing about the high priest that we have. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And then he begins to describe him. And through chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, all the way down to chapter 5, verse 10, when he concludes and says that of our high priest. He's called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Kind of an interesting subject that in this book we learn about, of course, that our high priest, Jesus Christ, is not an Aaronic priest, but from the order of Melchizedek. Well, then he, had, he stops and he gives a warning from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6. By the way, there are five long warnings in the book of Hebrews. Be sure you don't do this. Be sure you don't miss on this. And so there's a long warning. And then look at chapter 7 and verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, he picks up where he left off. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And he goes on to describe this Melchizedekian priesthood, of which Jesus is, of course, one. And then he comes all the way down to verse 28 of chapter 7, saying, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmities, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son, capital S, who is consecrated forevermore. So now let me tell you the sum of these things. As a matter of fact, look at verse 26 when he, of chapter 7 when he said, For such a high priest became us, or is becoming of us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Such a high priest 
He comes to chapter 8 and verse 1 and says, we have such a high priest. And so those two words are important because they introduce the subject to us. You know, the Old Testament had priests, didn't it? You remember all of that, those long chapters and out in the desert and when God gave them the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Uh, one of the sons of Israel, that is of Jacob, was named Levi. And of that tribe, God said, I will make priests out of you, the tribe of Levi. And then some years later, two uh, Levites named Moses and Aaron were born. And God said, now Aaron will be the priest and Moses, you'll be the prophet and the leader. And so we have an Aaronic priesthood. So from Levi to Aaron to all of their descendants, all the way down to the time of Jesus, we have this priesthood, this Old Testament priesthood. Of course, part of the subject of the New Testament is what? That the Old Testament is done and the old priesthood has finished. Chapter 7, uh, for example, and verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the law is changed, and so the priesthood has been changed. You know, for some reason still, human religions that have come along even in the age of grace, human religions love to have a priest. You ever notice that? A priest, a prophet, some holy man, some equivalent to this. So Catholicism that has been around uh, since the first few centuries, they have a pope and a, and a number of priests. Mormon, Mormonism has priests. Anglicanism in, uh, in uh, Europe has priests. And, and then the Eastern religions like the Hindus, Islam, and Buddhism, they all have their holy men, whether they call them priests or not. I, it's just that we love to have some human being representing us to God. Maybe we think that if we have human beings, we'll get by a little easier, you know? Uh, somebody like us, and he's fallible, and we're fallible, and God will excuse him, and God will excuse us. We just, I don't know what it is. We just kind of like human intercessors. The book of Hebrews comes along and says, do away with all of that. There's one mediator between man and God. There's one intercessor making intercession for you, and that has to be Jesus Christ, who is a Melchizedekian priesthood, exalted to the right hand of God. That's the subject, of course, that he uh, gives here. Now, Hebrews is written to Jewish people, that's why it's called Hebrews, to say to them, don't go back over there to the temple. You've heard the gospel. We've preached to you who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you and how your sacrificing is done. And now he is your high priest. Don't go back over there to those sacrifices. Don't go back over there to that high priest. You will not be saved by doing that. You have to come to Jesus by faith. And so all throughout this book, that's the plea. That's the warning. That's the description of their new high priest that they have. Of course, the Jewish people had a hard time with that because uh, they had been doing that for 1,500 years. And after all, God dictated this on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai. It was pretty hard to leave it. And yet here comes God dictating again in the New Testament saying, now this is the way walk ye in it. Well, you know, our 
evangelistic call today is much the same way when you think about it. We are saying to people, you cannot save yourself or represent yourself before God, and neither can any other human being. You can't do it, and some other human being can't do it either. What you need is a Savior, and you need a Savior who doesn't have to atone for his own sin, but is sinless and can atone for your sin. And that person has to be both God and sinless man. And we have such a high priest. We have such a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you'll put your faith in him, then you can have eternal life. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. That's really the message of the whole New Testament, isn't it? And so we come here to chapter 8, and the writer says, let me give you a summary, and he's going to say two very important things. And as you look at your bulletin, I have these in two large words. <laughs> Number one, in verse 1, we have a transcendent high priest. And secondly, in verse 2, we have an eminent minister. There's a reason why I use both of those words. First of all, in verse 1, we have this transcendent high priest. Again, halfway through the book, we have a two-verse summary of everything that he's been saying so far. Now, what does transcendent mean? It means that he's the majesty in heaven. To be transcendent is to be above all, to be separated from all, to be different from all. And surely God is that, isn't he? God isn't touched by our sin. God isn't affected by our sin. God loves us, but he's higher than us. We will stand at his judgment seat, not him at our judgment seat, of course. And so we find in, the, in, in verse 1 that uh, we have such a high priest who's set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. There's a majesty in the heavens. Chapter 12 and verse 2, where we... we a read of Jesus approaching the cross, but he approached it with, uh, by accepting it because of the joy that was set before him. I don't think he's speaking of the cross as a joy, but he's speaking of heaven as a joy where he will go back to. And we have our high priest there. Now, in this sense, folks, our Savior is not like us. Jesus Christ is a transcendent high priest, he's sinless. He's perfect. He's the God of all eternity. We are none of those things. And so in this sense, he is higher than us. Let me read you a verse, and you can write it down if you're writing, in Isaiah 57, 15. In Isaiah 57, 15, you have this great statement. Isaiah says, thus, and, and God speaking through Isaiah, thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, transcendent. He's above us. He's high and holy. He dwells in that high and lofty place. Then he says right after that, I dwell with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. That is our second verse, and that is that he is eminent. He is close to us. On the one hand, he's high and holy, and on the other hand, he's very close to you. On the other hand, he, he's a high priest. He's a minister that ministers for you. This is a great thing. And so when we think of transcendent, we have to think of that. Now, 
in your outline if you're writing, which I put in your bulletin. Notice that after each of these subpoints, I have a colon there. That means there's something for you to complete. <laughs> so if you will listen, I'll give you the rest of that statement. And here is the first thing. His position is that he is sitting. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. He is set there. Now, this is a theme that in Hebrews has been going on and in the whole New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 3, the whole book begins with this statement, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down there. Or listen to Ephesians 1.20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Colossians 3.1, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now here I simply want you to understand that that means his work is done. That means he doesn't have to work anymore to accomplish our salvation. There are other reasons for sitting at his right hand, as we'll see, but here I want us to recognize this. He doesn't have to die again. He doesn't have to be incarnated as a human being again and, and shed blood again. All of that is done for you. He's sitting rather than standing, as the book of Hebrews said, the priests of the Old Testament stood all day long, and they had no place to sit down. They had to stand and do their work because their work was never finished. Our high priest sat down. And so remember that your redemption is complete. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so, first thing that we understand is that. You know, human beings are amazing creatures. You and I are pretty amazing. God made us that way partly because we're in the image and likeness of God and, and partly because we're different from all the other living creatures on the earth. Look at what we do. <laughs> Look at what man has done over the years. All that, that human beings can accomplish, even men that, are not, that don't have faith in Jesus Christ, they're still amazing creatures. And we do all of this. So it's natural for us to think we can do this. Well, there's a life to live, and after that, there's a heaven and a hell. All right, I will do it, and I'll end up in heaven, not in hell. It's natural for us to think that way. But think of it this way. Salvation is a moral work. It is not something you put your hands to. It's not something you put your mind to. It's not something that you can create because you're a human being. It's a moral work, and you are dead in trespasses and sin, and there's nothing you can do about it. So no matter how hard you work at it, and no matter how, if you get some human priest who also has his own sin, he can't do anything about it. You need something far different, and we have a Savior who finished that moral work and is sitting in heaven because the work is done. 
That's the first thought that he gives us here. Secondly, his relation is that he is at God's right hand. The relation of the son with the father. He's at the father's right hand. And so we're told that, of course, in verse 1 also, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And also 924, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear, notice, in the presence of God for us. And so he is there in the presence of God, which means, folks, he is co-equal with the Father. When he can sit at the right hand of the Father and be in the presence of the Father, it means that he is co-equal. Chapter 5, we have that great scene where John is weeping because no one is able to open the seven-sealed book. And then the lamb who has been slain before the foundation of the world approaches the throne of God the Father and takes the book out of the Father's hand. And rather than dying for such an act, all of the angels of heaven worship him because now he is holy and he is recognized as God. And so when he's at the Father's right hand, we have that great picture. You see the word majesty? The, the, the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, that's the way God the Father is sometimes pictured. Megalusunes is the word. Mega, you know, when we, when we say mega, uh, we mean big, we mean huge, something is mega big, we mean extra big. And so here's a word that describes God, megalusune. He's, he is everything, bigger than this universe, bigger than the world. Well, those of you who have been studying 2 Peter chapter 1 may remember this word, 2 Peter 1.16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his megalosune. And so not only is God the Father the majesty in the heavens, Jesus Christ is the megalosune also. And therefore can be at the right hand of God, equal with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and of course God the Holy Spirit also. Now, we don't have and we don't need popes and priests and cardinals and other representatives. We have a high priest who's at the right hand of God because he is God in the flesh. No pope, no priest, no cardinal, no preacher, no anyone else is at the right hand of the Father. It was a wonderful thing when the disciples saw that on, at, on the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. They saw his majesty there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we have his position that he's sitting because his work is done. We have his relation. He's at the right hand of God the Father and equal to him. And then his exaltation, finally, he is in the heavens. 
He is exalted above all creation. In the heavens, it says. Do you remember Philippians 2.9 where Paul says he, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. But then he says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. There is no creature anywhere, heaven, on earth, or in hell, that doesn't have to admit Jesus Christ is exalted of the Father to the right hand. What a wonderful thing that is. And so Jesus prayed in John 17, O oh, now, Father, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. Exalted back to the glory of the Father. And so, you're, you're not too far from chapter 9 and the last verses of chapter 9, 24 through 28. There are three things said in these verses that are very important. In verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Do you know what he's doing right now? He's appearing in the presence of God at his right hand before his face for you and me. We'll come back to that thought in a minute when we talk about a minister. But in verse 26, you have a past tense. Not only now to appear, but he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared, past tense, when he came to this earth to die for our sins. Now he is appearing before the Father, present tense. And then in verse 28, and to them that look for him shall he appear, future tense. He will appear again one day. You know why he's describing it that way? In that Old Testament tabernacle or temple, the priest would be with the people, and then he alone, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies, right? And he took blood with him, and he did his work in the Holy of Holies, and the people would wait. Is God going to kill him there or not? Is he worthy to live? Is he doing the right thing? But when he would come back out of the Holy of Holies, a shout went up, and people said, Good, our sin is atoned for one more year. Well, in the same way, our high priest went to the sacrifice for us. He's gone into heaven, and we are waiting. And he will come back and appear in the, in the last day, and we will be with him forever. And so that is happening. I also want you to notice before we leave this thought, chapter 10 and verse 19. Why do we go to church? <laughs> Why are you here today? Well, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Verse 24, considering one another. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of our one another, exhorting one another. Why do we come to church? Because we have such a high priest. And we come here to recognize all that he has done for us. And we exhort and encourage and lift one another up 
because of what our high priest is doing for us. And so we have a transcendent high priest. Let me take you back then to our thought again in chapter 8 and verse 2. Secondly, we have a minister, verse 2 says, a minister of the sanctuary, of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now, I use the word eminent, and I spell it correctly. I've checked myself a half a dozen times to make sure, because there are three words that you could pronounce eminent, and they all mean different things, and we use them all the time. If we spelled this E-M-I-N-E-N-T, we would mean someone who's very important. He, he's eminently qualified. He's an eminent person, meaning like the king or the president or somebody like that. Now, Jesus would qualify, but that's not the meaning here. If we said Jesus will return at any moment, his coming is imminent, we would spell it I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. But the third word is I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, which is always used as opposed to transcendent, he is also imminent. Whereas in transcendence, he is above and beyond all of us because of who he is. But as opposed to that, his eminence is he's very close to you. He even lives within you. He does things for you daily. He hears your prayers. He makes intercession for you uh, moment by moment. And so back to our verse in Isaiah 57, 15. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. God wants to revive. Jesus Christ wants to revive you. And he did. So he is very imminent. And of course, you remember, don't you? Chapter uh, chapter four and verse 14. Seeing then that we have this great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus became one of us, very eminent. And he became one of us and yet passed every test and never gave in to sin. We can go to him as a minister. Now, number one, his work is a sanctuary minister. I say that for a reason. He's a sanctuary minister. Do you know that we have the word minister in the New Testament a lot of times? You and I have a certain ministry. We minister in various ways. But you, we normally get it from the word for deacon. Diakonos is, we get our word deacon, which means a minister, somebody who ministers among us. Jesus is a certain minister like that. Paul described himself as a minister. We are ministers like that. But that's not the word here. A more rare word is this, liturgos, which means liturgy. There is a ministry that the, the priest did in the holy place, and it's called liturgy. And that's the word here. You have it again in chapter 8 and verse 6, translated ministry. But now hath he obtained a more excellent liturgy, ministry. Well, what did they do? Well, that priest 
went in. He took the blood from the altar out here. He came into the holy place. He sprinkled some here. He, he put on incense here. He went to the table of showbread here, the candelabra here, and he did all of the ministry going from one place to another. That's called liturgy. And he did that for us. So the word liturgy means a helper, a server, and one who did it at his own expense. I found out every time it's mentioned, it's somebody who did it at his own expense. And Christ did that at his own expense. Remember Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist? That he was doing his liturgy in the temple when, the, when Gabriel appeared to him and said, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth's going to have a son. And uh, later when he was leaving, uh, leaving the temple, it says it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, the days of his liturgy, then he went back home. And so we have this kind of intercessor. Chapter 7, verse 25 is just a few verses above our text. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to do what? Make intercession. He's busy there. Now, it's kind of funny for us to try to imagine someone who's sitting because his work is done, and yet he's doing this. That is, his presence, his body and blood, if you will, are always interceding for us, always creating the liturgy for us. I want to do something with our songbook again and read you a, a, a song. So take your songbook. Now, here's a song on page 299 that we ought to sing, but it, it's kind of a difficult song to sing. But Charles Wesley says it so well. I want to read it to you, 299. Uh, by the way, uh, this, this uh, is called a soliloquy. You know, this is when you preach to yourself. Uh, you know, in the Psalms, you know, oh, why are you cast down, O my soul? Find your joy in God. You're talking to yourself. Come on, soul. Get with it. Well, here's the same thing that Charles Wesley describes. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for all our race, his blood atoned for all our race, and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. One, or they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me, quote, Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Quote, forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. Verse 4, the father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. I am now reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. 
we have a liturgical high priest who's in the heavens doing that service for us. Secondly, his location is the Lord's tabernacle. The true tabernacle, if you will, we find in verse 2. A sanctuary of the true tabernacle. Do you know that there's a, evidently a temple in heaven? Or something like a temple, as much as we can understand it. Look at chapter 9, verse 11, which says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not like an earthly building. Chapter 9 and verse 23 says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so in verse 24 again, he's entered into the holy places not made with hands, that tabernacle in the heavens. You remember, you remember Isaiah saying, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled what? The temple where he was. Or you remember John seeing the throne of God, and he said, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And so these descriptions are of a, of a sanctuary-like place, a temple-like place where God lives. I'm sure that we cannot describe it or understand it all, but we at least have those words to describe it. Now, I, I want to make an extra point here, if I can. Try not to take too much time with this. But as a pastor, I thought, this is, this is a good reminder of us to make. That he is in heaven because of his body and his blood. He is in heaven because of what he has done for us with the sacrifice of himself in his body and his blood. And so, in chapter 10 and verse 20 we find that we have a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. He could enter into that heavenly tabernacle because the veil that cut us off from it was his own body that he gave for us on the cross. The blood is even easier to understand. So in chapter 9 and verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? And so I'm saying this, Jesus Christ is there by virtue of what he has done with his body and blood. He is in heaven and his body and blood are in heaven in that sense. Now, we take the Lord's Supper, don't we? And when we say body and blood, we're reminded of that. But we do it in a special way, and we have a disagreement with those who don't do it this way. There are those who have basically been the Roman Church or the Catholic Church who believe that somehow they change the body and blood, or, the, or excuse me, the, the wine and the bread, into the actual body and blood so it's right here on the earth in front of you the body and the blood of jesus right there on that table we disagree with that the body and blood are in heaven and then there's the lutheran view who don't go quite that far but they say but the presence of jesus is there in that juice and in that cracker the presence of jesus is there and you ingest it when you eat those things we disagree with that because his presence is at the right hand of the Father. 
Rather, we have a memorial view of the, of the uh, Lord's Supper, and that is when you and I take it, we know we're eating crackers and we're drinking grape juice. But it does remind us that his finished work is in heaven. His body and blood have brought him before the Father. That's where he is, not here in these elements, not here present or physically uh, with us in that sense. He's with us in the sense that he always is with us in his omnipresence, but not in those elements of the Lord's Supper. And so when we take the Lord's Supper in our sense of a memorial, we are doing it for a very real reason. And to take it in any other way would violate our conviction about who our priest and our, and, and our minister uh, really is. Let me move on to the last point, and that is the recipients. And that is for man not by man. Notice he says, and not man. That is, the Lord pitched these things. The Lord has done this. You and I and no human priest has ever done this. This is what the whole book is about. Let me remind you then of two verses. In 725, which we read a minute ago, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession. What is it? for them. And I would couple that with Titus 3.5, which begins this way, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It is for us, but it is not by us. And our salvation is not by ourselves, not by a human priest, not by a human minister, but rather what he has done for us. And the whole book of Hebrews is to tell them, it's not your, it's not your display and your work and all that you do over there in the temple that saves you. It's your faith in what has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thrust of this book. Historical worship, for some reason, as I have said, wants to create this human liturgy, doesn't it? Wants to have some priest over here burning incense and then over here doing this and then over here doing this and then over here doing this. Away with it all. And independence have put the pulpit back in the middle and said, get these altars out of here. Our altar is in heaven. And here's, our, here's what we do. We preach about it because it's already done for us. I think modern worship, folks, is the same old liturgy. I'm going to perform. I'm going to do something for God. He's going to clap for me. I'm going to perform. I'm going to display. We're going to do things in all of our activity that God will be so pleased with. He'll be so happy. He'll clap for us. When we ought to bow our head before him and come before him in reverence and godly fear, knowing that our God is a consuming fire. And we understand what he has done for us. Worship must be a recognition of what he has done, is doing there, and will always do throughout eternity. That is worship. So, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be. You can accept him because of the work that he has done for you. It's not your work, not my work, not a priest's work but what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you will simply accept him by faith, you can have the benefits of all that he has done for you. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, worship him in reverence and godly fear. 
Worship him, as the Bible says, in the beauty of holiness. Worship him whose name is high and lofty. See him as high and holy, transcendent, and see him also dwelling with people of humble hearts. That is, he's eminent and close to you. Stand now with me, if you will, as we think about these things for a moment and we sing a song together. Let's stand and go to the Lord in prayer. Our high priest, the one who's interceding for us, and let's ask him to speak to our hearts in the way he desires. Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, our high priest, our minister, how our hearts rejoice and we thank you for what we realize you have done for us and what your word makes clear and plain to us. And so, Father, we rejoice as we recognize what you have done, what you are doing in that heavenly tabernacle, and what you will do when you return. And we thank you and praise you for that. Father, if there's someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior and hears this message now or later and realizes what uh, a sinful shape he's in or her, Father, that person needs to accept Christ as Savior, and I pray that they could today. And then, Father, help us as your children to always depend on you and always look to you and rest uh, in, what the, in the work that you have done for us. And I pray, Father, you would encourage our hearts by this, encourage our walk before you. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation as we do. Our invitation's open. You can come even as we sing, kneel at this altar, return to your seat, or meet me at the front and say, I have this need. I need it. Have it taken care of. You do what God is leading you to do while Gordon comes and leads us in the song.